Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. We begin with stories about the Lahaina Maui fire based on both news reports and conversations that I've had with Maui residents. And President Trump sticks it to Fox News by skipping the first GOP presidential debate. And Billy Bush, the Anheuser-Busch heir, offers to buy back Bud Light from InBev, a European company located in Brussels, Belgium. And finally, there's a new lawsuit in California. Six university professors are suing California community colleges because they oppose new regulations as of March 2023, which require the teaching of, quote, politicized conceptions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. All of this and the bigger picture on today's edition of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired So tired Now we're going to open up with this first cut and it's a press release that was put out, actually a a video press release or a a press conference that was put out by a group called Na Ohana Olele. Uh, it's a coalition of community members in Lahaina, and they called on Governor Josh Green to meet three demands for the recovery of the community of Lahaina, Maui. Uh, let's take a listen to this one, cut number 1A. Aloha, my name is Tiare Lawrence. We are Naohana Olele, a coalition of community members in Lahaina. Today we call on Governor Josh Green to meet three demands for the recovery of the Lahaina community. The demands are one, give our community time to grieve. The fire occurred only 10 days ago and many people are still in shock and mourning. The governor should not rush to rebuild the community without first giving people time to heal, especially without including the community itself in the planning. Two, put the community first in any planning process for rebuilding Lahaina. The governor should work with the community to develop a plan that, need, that meets the needs of the people. Fast track development cannot come at the cost of community control. Number three, we asked the governor to amend the emergency proclamation to ensure that Chapter 92 Sunshine Law remains in full force. This law guarantees the public's right to know about government decision making and the discussions and information used in that process. The governor should ensure that all decisions about the rebuilding of Lahaina are made in the open and with full participation of our Lahaina community. Now, a little bit about Na Ohana Olele. Uh, this is a group of individuals uh, that represent the West Maui uh, community. Ohana is uh, uh, the Hawaiian word for family, and also by extension, uh, community in this sense. And Lele is the uh, ancient name of this area or tract of land uh, that today we refer to as Lahaina. Now, there again are three demands. Uh, give Lahaina community time to grieve. 
put the community first in any planning process for rebuilding, and finally amend the emergency proclamation to ensure Chapter 92 Sunshine Law remains in full force. So these demands are are very specific. Um, Again, uh, the first demand is give the Lahaina community time to grieve. Well, that's reasonable. And at the time of this recording, 10 days had gone by. But they were still, uh, of course, the the community was still missing a thousand people. Uh, They don't even know who's still alive or who has perished. It's not clear. So they haven't had sufficient time to grieve. This is what they're saying. Uh, And they're saying, put the community first in any planning process. And we're going to dig deeper into this. And they also make a very specific demand to amend the emergency proclamation to ensure that Chapter 92 Sunshine Law remains in full force. And we're going to get into this because Chapter 92 Sunshine Law at the time of this press conference had been curtailed or had been suspended. But let's continue. Uh, listen, listen to this next cut, cut number 1B. And here's the governor just a few days after the fire in Lahaina. And here's what the governor had to say. I'm already thinking about ways for the state to acquire that land so that we can put it into workforce housing. To- so the first thing the governor is saying, I'm already looking for ways for the state to acquire that land. He doesn't even say what land. What land are we talking about to put it into workforce housing? So he's thinking, ah, land grab. The the, the state of Hawaii is going to grab land and we're going to turn it into workforce housing. All right, he continues. Put it back into families or to make it open spaces in perpetuity as a memorial to people who were lost. We want this to be something that we remember uh, after the pain passes uh, as a magic place. And Lahaina will rebuild. The tragedy right now is the loss of life. Yes, the tragedy is the loss of life, but he jumped the shark. He jumped ahead. He didn't allow the people of Lahaina the time to grieve. And that's what uh, uh, the group Naohana Olele is saying. You haven't even given us time to grieve. You were here on the ground two days, just a couple days after the destruction of the fire. And you're saying you want to take land and put it into workforce housing. That's not right. Allow the community to be a part of the decision-making. Don't just show up, uh, you people from Honolulu. And for those of you who don't live in Hawaii, who haven't been to Hawaii, I was born and raised in Hawaii. Yes, there's a very different sort of feeling towards Oahu and the island that has Honolulu and the capital of the state of Hawaii. The people on the neighbor islands, Maui, um, Moloka'i, Lanai, uh, the big island, Kauai, the people on these other islands, there has always been an underlying distrust for the people on Oahu because everything seems to revolve around Oahu. And this just fuels that sort of thinking 
thinking when uh, he doesn't even uh, have a talk story, a get together with the locals uh, in Lahaina. He doesn't even listen to uh, what they're saying or, or they're uh, helping them in terms of the grieving process. It's here I am, here I am with my big uh, pockets of money and uh, yeah, we're just going to buy up the land and, and make workforce housing doesn't go over very well. So remember the third demand that uh, the group uh, Na Ohana Olele made was amend the emergency proclamation to ensure that Chapter 92 Sunshine Law remains in full force. Well, it looks like the state of Hawaii has now conveniently found a new way to rule and to rule tyrannically in the state of Hawaii. And that is by just making emergency proclamations and suspending the Hawaii revived statutes. Uh, I'm not making this up. You can look it up. Office of the Governor, State of Hawaii. Fifth proclamation relating to homelessness, July 18, 2023, signed by Governor Josh Green. Green, quote, Section 127A-13 uh, HRS, to the extent necessary to expedite the acquisition, construction, repair, renovation, occupancy of housing that is uh, designed exclusively for permanent, temporary, or transitional occupancy by persons experiencing homelessness or at risk of being homeless. And there are many, many uh, things that are suspended, but let's skip down to Chapter 92, HRS. This is what Naohana Olele uh, referred to. Chapter 92, HRS, has now been suspended. Oh, what does Chapter 92, Hawaii Revised Statutes say? Public agency meetings and records to the extent that any notice requirements or any other provisions of Chapter 92 may delay the expeditious actions, decision, or approval of any agency. So this is what they're referring to as uh, the suspension of these sunshine laws. In other words, the government doesn't have to give announcement of meetings. It doesn't have to make available records uh, to the extent that any notice requirements or any provisions of chapter 992 uh, have to be maintained, uh, applied, or, or followed. So in other words, they can just operate in the dark. They can do whatever they want to do. And the government can just uh, go ahead and make these proclamations. And they have tyranny. The state of Hawaii, the legislature of the state of Hawaii, they need to reel in this guy, Joshua Green. Because he's coming out of the gate like a dictator. Boy, they sure did love COVID uh, because they were able to pass or put forth a proclamation after proclamation which suspended the Hawaii revised statutes. And basically, they ruled like dictators. And they don't want to give up that sort of power. So here we go again, fifth proclamation related to homelessness, July 18th, 2023, where past COVID, those proclamations are not in power anymore. So here we go again. Uh, he's going to make another proclamation uh, past COVID, post-COVID emergency, uh, which gives him powers uh, to do what he wants to do uh, without uh, having to uh, have laws passed. That's... That's the proper way to do things. You have laws passed through the Hawaii State Legislature, through the elected officials, and it goes through a process. Not this time. 
Honolulu Civil Beat, August 13, 2023. Maui County knew of Lahaina's fire risk for years. According to the county's hazard mitigation plan developed back in 2020, West Maui, that's where Lahaina is situated, had a 90% chance of annual wildfires. Uh, figures in the report <clears throat> mirror those in different reports from the nonprofit Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. Uh, the later report included a map of Maui areas of greatest concern, and Lahaina was one of those areas highlighted on the map. Here's another related article. Now, this goes back to all the way back to 2016. So we're talking seven years ago. Uh, we're here in 2023 now. So seven years ago, University of Hawaii News, January 22, 2016. Hawaii wildfires strongly linked to human activity. A new research paper co-authored by University of Hawaii at Manoa researchers outlines the surprising frequency of wildfire on the Hawaiian Islands. Look at this. The paper published in Pacific Science found that within the last decade, the state has experienced an average of more than a thousand fires burning over 20,000 acres every year. Now, why wasn't this something that people talked about much? Because the majority of these fires were in grasslands and areas that were once had agriculture or once had cattle. And so there was just brush there. And so the fires uh, spread rather rapidly, but there were no homes or businesses there. Very, very few. So it really wasn't talked about. Uh, the article continues. The authors show that human activities have also dramatically increased the uh, flammability of Hawaii through what? Land use practices that have promoted the spread and establishment of fire-prone areas. Land use practices such as deforestation for ranching and plantations, widespread abandonment of agricultural lands, and the reduction of cattle grazing these lands. Uh, in 1960, 2.6 million acres, more than half of Hawaii's total land area, was being either cultivated or used for uh, grazing of cattle. And today that's been reduced to 970,000 acres. And this article was written in uh, back in 2016, so it's probably far less than that today. The bottom line is this was incredible mismanagement uh, by the state of Hawaii. Uh, it was mismanagement by... Uh, landowners, uh, it, it, as the University of Hawaii pointed out, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Well, moving on to our next piece, Trump to skip GOP debate uh, in favor of Tucker Carlson interview. Well, uh, President Trump uh, has confirmed he's not going to uh, participate in the upcoming uh, first Republican primary debate. Let's take a listen to cut number two. In two days, Republican presidential hopefuls are set to take the stage in the first primary debate. This one's in Milwaukee. But the front runner, former President Trump, he will not be there. Trump made the announcement on social media yesterday afternoon, writing, the public knows who I am and what successful a presidency I had. Uh, I will therefore not be doing the debates, plural. Sources tell CNN the former president plans to sit down for an interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson instead. And the interview is set to air on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, around the same time as the debate. 
Now, in a follow-up article, the Washington Post, uh, Trump skips first Republican presidential primary, and it's going to be held in Milwaukee on Wednesday uh, this week. Trump advisors said the interview had already been recorded. That's an interview uh, that's been recorded ahead of time with uh, former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. And that interview will be uh, aired on X, formerly called Twitter. Now, this is certainly a blow to Fox News, no doubt about that, uh, which will be airing the first debate. Why? Well, because it's going to be a, be a ratings killer. Trump knows this. There's nothing that he can really gain. People know his positions. Uh, they've seen him. He's all over the air. He's all over the news. And he's been holding massive rallies throughout the summer. Ever since the 2020 election, he's been holding massive uh, rallies. And so people know his positions. People know who he is. There's nothing he can really gain. He's 40 or 50 points ahead of the number two person, according to all the polls. So there's really nothing that uh, he can gain. What he can gain, though, is uh, giving it to the man. And in that case, that man would be uh, Mr. Murdoch and the Murdoch family, who have not been very kind to Trump ever since he lost the election uh, back in 2020. And so this is Trump giving it to the man, and this is a comeuppance for uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, in a post to his Truth Social account on Thursday, Trump questioned, uh, why should he show up to a debate? if poll numbers showed him leading the runner-up. Again, by 40 or 50 points, there really is no point. So it's funny what's taking place right now because Fox is uh, doing backflips and begging Trump to come on because why? <laughs> the ratings are going to stink. They're not going to get the kind of advertising dollars they would want to, and Trump couldn't care less. Well, Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience, both in the United States and internationally. We're so thankful for you, our Narrative Wars listeners, and we know that you could choose to do a number of other things with your time, and we honor your commitment to free speech and the American values that still make us all proud to be living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You can follow us on Twitter and Getter by going to at Jeffrey K. Lyons. And for more information, visit our website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. Also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate, follow, and tell two to three like-minded friends. That's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Well, continuing now with the next piece, we move from President Trump, the king of GOP presidential primary candidates to a former king of beers, uh, the Anheuser-Busch Budweiser brand. And this piece has something to do with Billy Bush. He's the heir to the Anheuser-Busch dynasty, and he is interested in purchasing back the Bud Light brand. Let's take a listen to this, cut number three. Billy Bush outlines many of them in his fit book, 
family reign the details how the family and then the company lost its way he now wants to buy the bud light brand back and billy is with us from his hometown my hometown of st louis uh all right would the frogs come back sure i mean the frogs were a great advertising we have the clydesdales um which uh which of course InBev um, owns right now. They own all the rights to all of that stuff. But uh, if they were to sell me the uh, brand back, Bud and Bud, Bud Light, I think that would be amazing. Uh, my family, my great grandfather, Adolphus, and it's in the book, Family Reigns. He came out with uh, Budweiser back in the 1800s, 1876 to be exact. And it became the king of beers, the number one beer in the world. And that lasted until Bud Light came along, of course, back in the early eighties and uh, Bud Light then, took off and that became the number one beer in the world. And it was largely due to the great advertising that they had. You're exactly right. Now let's take a listen to this piece. Uh, Anheuser-Busch Air offers to buy back Bud Light. We'll make that brand great again, he says. Well, Anheuser-Busch, of course, was sold back in 2008 to InBev and they are a very large corporation. They are located in Europe. Uh, here's what Bush had to say. If they don't want that brand any longer, sell it back to the Bush family. Quote, sell it to me. I'll be the first in line to buy that brand back from you and we'll make that brand great again. Bush explained how disheartening it has been to watch the beer brand and what was so much a part of his childhood lose its legacy of valuing its customers and employees. Bush continues, quote, that culture is completely gone now. Bush said they knew who their drinkers were. Even my dad at 89 years old, 90 years old, he was still going to the bars selling Budweiser back in those days. So the family was very hands-on, it sounds like. They were in contact with their customers. But now you've got this impersonal company uh, that is situated in Europe and they really don't give a rip about the customers in the United States of America. And it's become apparent because they have killed the brand making mistake after mistake. And we've covered that in depth, the whole uh, Dylan Mulvaney uh, situation. Quote, this is Billy Bush uh, concluding, when you're a foreign company and you rely on those woke students that are coming out of these local colleges to do your advertising for you, you're making a big mistake. Well, we're going to follow this story in the future and we'll see if uh, Anheuser-Busch uh, in Bev decides to sell the company back to the Bush family. Well, we move now from woke marketing executives at InBev who have uh, killed the brand to uh, the woke policies of California lawmakers who are killing education in the state of California. Now, this next piece has to do with a group that sued to halt California Community College uh, rolling out further DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion policies in the community colleges in the state of California. Let's take a listen to this and it's cut number four. California is forcing public university professors to parrot the views of the state on contentious DEI issues. FIRE is suing to stop it. DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion 
All of which sounds fine, right? But materials put out by the state show that in this case, DEI translates to highly contested and controversial views. The state definitions say that the idea of colorblindness perpetuates racial inequities, and even the idea of merit is embedded in the ideology of whiteness and upholds race-based structural inequality. The California community colleges are imposing a state-mandated dogma on tens of thousands of community college professors throughout the state of California, forcing them to teach and preach the state's accepted view on DEI. And that violates academic freedom and it violates the First Amendment, and that's not acceptable. The six professors that we're representing span the range of subjects from chemistry to philosophy to history to English. And they're all concerned about what the state expects them to do to insert these DEI principles into their curriculum. We are suing to stop that because it violates professors' First Amendment rights. Now, who is this group, FIRE? Well, it's an acronym for Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. It formerly was known as Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. So they're the ones that are bringing the lawsuit on behalf of six professors that are within the California State Community College system. Uh, in a follow-up article in Just the News, California professors sue to block DEI teaching and tenure mandates. The California community college professors are pushing back against new policies and regulations that were adopted in March of 2023, requiring that they, quote, espouse and teach politicized conceptions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So these new regulations amend Title V of the California Code of Regulations to include diversity, equity, and inclusion, and accessibility standards in the evaluation of tenure review of employees. In other words, if you as a professor don't push this dogma, then you're going to get dinged when you come up for raises. You're going to get dinged when you come up for tenure review. You are basically hamstrung and you're arms are tied behind your back, you have no choice but to parrot the DEI policies uh, according to this new uh, law that's been passed in the state of California. Uh, continuing in the article, according to the lawsuit, this means that more than 54,000 professors who teach within the California community college system will be required to include anti-racist perspectives into their teaching. Well, and as we know, anti-racist perspectives uh, ha having to be incorporated in their teaching, well, that's just code for critical race theory. You must teach this to your students. Professors not only would have to write diversity statements and develop knowledge of the intersectionality of social identities and multiple uh, axes of oppression that people from different racial, ethnic, and other minoritized groups face. In other words, it's all going to be about race. It's all going to be about oppression. It's all going to be about turning the universities into propaganda institutions, which are basically going to pit one group against another group. Uh, it, they're going to push Marxist ideology, and they're going to uh, not unify the students. They're going to create disunity among the students. They're going to create 
tension among the students, and basically they'll raise a whole generation of new students they're gonna, uh, that are going to be trained to hate America. This is what they're doing in the state of California with this DEI nonsense. Now, I, as I mentioned uh, in past shows, I was a university professor for 10 years. And with this uh, policy that is uh, being shoved down the throats of these university professors, uh, they don't have any chance. They're going to have to put it in their syllabus. They're going to have training on the campus. Uh, they're going to make it clear that this is going to be criteria for your evaluations, for your annual raises, for your future contracts. It's going to affect future hiring at the universities. So this is all-encompassing. Basically, you must parrot the Marxist party line, the critical race theory line. You must push these ideals. If you don't, you're out. You're looking for another job. You're gone. 54,000 professors are going to be affected by this. That's why this lawsuit is so important. Despite promoting the inclusion of minority voices, the article continues, the state also warns professors not to, quote, weaponize academic freedom to, quote, inflict curricular trauma on our students. In other words, don't teach the truth because that's going to create trauma to the students. Don't give two uh, viewpoints of ideas. Don't allow your students to discuss ideas openly because that's not pushing the DEI agenda. This is all coded language. This is all the destruction of education and especially higher education in the state of California. Quote, hearing uncomfortable ideas is not curriculum trauma. This is pushback from those that are bringing the lawsuit. Teaching all sides of an issue is not weaponizing academic freedom, said uh, Palsgaard. That's called, wait for it, education. And now let's take a look at the bigger picture. Well, usually during our final segment of this program, uh, we focus on the lighter side of human existence. But today, we're going to discuss something more fundamental, something that all humans will most likely face at some point in their life. And that question is, what will you do when you're faced with a situation that is truly life-threatening? The people of Lahaina, Maui, they didn't know on August 8, 2023, that it would be a day of terror and split-second decision-making. When Lahaina residents went to bed on August 7th, they weren't aware that a fire broke out on the other side of the island at 3.45 a.m., close to 20 miles away from Lahaina on the slopes of Haleakala. But that did happen. But then more fires broke out, fires close to Lahaina. At 5.15 a.m., Maui electric crews, they were started responding to outages in Lahaina, Napili, on West Maui, and parts of Olinda Pi'iholo, in upcountry Maui. At 6.37 a.m., a brush fire scorched three acres of land in Lahaina Luna Road, and at 6.40 a.m., Lahaina Intermediate School evacuated. At 7.30 a.m., Hawaii EMA post, quote, triple hazard conditions, high gusty winds, high surf, red flag warning, extreme wildfire risk. 
By 9 a.m., an estimated 675 acres in upcountry Lahaina burned. There were no injuries and the winds were gusting up to 80 miles per hour. At 9 a.m. on August the 8th, Maui Fire Department declares Lahaina Brush Fire 100% contained shortly before 9 a.m. However, there were power outages and they impacted the ability to pump water and the public was asked to conserve water in West Maui. So Maui has had a history of brush fires. This was nothing new. They probably thought this was just another fire that occurred. It was above the town of Lahaina and they figured we're okay. The fire department declared it 100% contained, but that wasn't the case. Not that day, not on August the 8th, 2023. By 10.57 a.m., the brush fire reignited Lahaina. And by 3 p.m. at Hale Mahaolu, which is a government-subsidized housing for families and seniors, the air, quote, the air was so thick with smoke that she could no longer see nearby trees. The hurricane force gusts were spraying embers and flames everywhere, Gloria Pereira said. The senior center, by the end of the day, was destroyed. By this time, the fire had begun to rage through Lahaina. There were no sirens. There was no evacuation order to the residents of Lahaina to evacuate. 3.42 p.m., the county post fire department advising immediate proactive evacuation of residents in Piiholu and Olinda roads. The sirens, however, they never sounded. The police in the area, they don't sound their sirens or use their loudspeakers to evacuate Lahaina. 4.47 p.m., tourists Brianna and Glenn Gill at the Lahaina Shores Beach Resort. Well, they get an emergency phone alert that awakened them from a nap. Evacuate your family and pets now. Do not delay. Many people did not see or respond to that 447 text. 5.03 p.m., the county posts that, quote, Lahaina fire flare-up forces Lahaina bypass road closure. Shelter in place encouraged. <laughs> what? Shelter in place? Like, sit in your house and let your house be engulfed with flames? Who in the county posted this? It makes absolutely no sense. That was at 5.03 p.m. When at 5.47 p.m., Brianna and Glenn Gill get a message that says, evacuate your family and pets now. Don't delay. So you've got conflicting messages between 4.47 p.m. and 5.03 p.m. All of this, you can track this. It's in an article and... The article is in the Star Advertiser, published in Honolulu, and the links are in the show notes. 5.15 p.m., Chelsea Denton Fuqua and her husband cower between a magic shop and a pizzeria on Front Street. A raging fire and a wall of smoke behind them. In front of them was a long line of cars, gridlocked, and then a short stone wall and then the ocean. Nearby firefighters arrived to confront the fire near Shevlin's coffee warehouse, but then they left. They departed. 
and the flames kicked up again in a field across the street. This was according to the New York Times. 5.15 p.m., Shevlin grabs a fire extinguisher, rushes outside. I'm standing out there trying to put out a little fire, and then I started hearing like a jet engine, he remembered. The fire was sucking wind in. It turned into a firestorm right then and there. Again, the New York Times. 6 p.m., dozens of people barely able to see through the smoke along Front Street. They're perched on the edge of the seawall, struggling to believe. Quote, we couldn't see people, but I hear people throwing up, screaming, said Yadris Noara, a sales manager at a local hotel who was fleeing on a scooter with a neighbor. He said he watched as a pit bull threw itself into the water. He called 911. The operator urged them to get into the water, too. New York Times. 6 p.m., 45-foot Coast Guard cutter had approached Lahaina Breakwater. As they eased in, trying to avoid running aground in the wind and the waves, the crew began casting rope lines through the smoke, uh, and they were extracting people from the water and saving lives. They pulled seven people out of the water to escape the fires. So here's the question. What do you do if you're faced with a situation like this? Well, sheltering in place, that's not an option. And yet many chose to remain in their homes. Up to a thousand people are still missing, unaccounted for. When faced with the imminent possibility of death, the most common responses are fight or flight. And there are stories of courageous homeowners that battled the fires from their roofs, but ultimately they had to flee for their lives. Their homes were lost. Some people just froze in disbelief. There's a story of a man who was on the front street watching the fire burn. As it moved towards him, he was next to the Pioneer Inn, which is close to the banyan tree, right across from the banyan tree in Lahaina. A man who survived told this story in a YouTube video, and he urged the man who was watching the fire to leave, but the man refused to move. And we don't know if that man ever survived the fire. Some people had just a few minutes to grab a handful of valuables and some pets before they jumped in their car to leave. One man went back towards the fire to save a neighbor's dog. He didn't survive. What would you take with you if you only had a few moments before your house went up in flames? A number of people took their wallets, passports, cell phone, a few items of clothing, one man filled his van with dogs and about 20 chickens, and then he evacuated. Some people abandoned their cars. They jumped into the ocean. Some were too old or not in good enough physical condition to jump over the seawall and enter the ocean, and some people helped them to get into the water. Some people died next to the seawall due to the smoke inhalation. One person who saw Lahaina a few days after the fire Describe Lahaina in three words, scorched earth apocalypse. Many were angry with the government. They were angry that the sirens didn't sound. They were angry that there was not clear direction from first responders. There were eyewitness reports of people being turned back, multiple roadblocks, forcing everybody into one direction, back down Front Street, with a line of cars as long as five miles, many people said, it came to a gridlock. 
it came to a complete stop and people had to evacuate their cars and jump in the ocean. One family was found in their car, all four. They didn't make it. In the days after the Lahaina fire, many were angry with the government because roads continued to be blocked into Lahaina. Food and supplies were not allowed in for the survivors. About 80% of Lahaina was destroyed by fire. It was a town of about 12,000 people, thousands of structures. The Safeway wasn't destroyed by the fire, as were a few cluster of homes remained. There was a church and a few other structures. The Maui community decided to work together without the government and brought food and supplies to survivors. And they brought it in by the ocean. Professional surfer Kai Lenny, along with commercial catamaran owners, other boat owners, brought much-needed supplies by the ocean. They chose to fight for the community in the recovery phase. So what is it that makes us human? Most of the residents of Lahaina acted on their own. They fled for their lives. They didn't wait for the sirens or the evacuation orders. Those orders never came. What is it that makes us human? Maui residents fought to help the surviving residents of Lahaina to get food and other supplies immediately after the fire. The county of Maui failed the survivors. So what does this say about us as human beings? Well, at the end of the day, human beings help other human beings. We don't wait for government. We don't wait for an impersonal third party to show up. Neighbors help neighbors. Residents of Maui told me that the entire town of Lahaina was on fire within less than 20 minutes. The wind was gusting up to 80 miles per hour and the fire was traveling at about one mile per minute. The fire was moving horizontally. Flaming pieces of wood were moving like a major league baseball pitch. A gasoline station exploded. Propane tanks were exploding next to homes. Cars were exploding. It's a miracle that anyone survived. Well, here's my final thoughts. Do what you can prayerfully for the people of Lahaina, Maui. We've got support agency links in the show notes. And be thankful for each day of life on this earth. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We conclude today's program with Stories of Survival, HNN Special Showcases, Perseverance, Bravery of the People of West Maui. This report from Hawaii News Now, August 16, 2023. This cuts about two minutes and 45 seconds you're going to hear the actual voices of the survivors of the Lahaina fire of August 8th, 2023. They speak for other survivors. They speak for those who can no longer speak. The gas station blew up at like three, and since then we've just been trying to outrun a fire. So we thought we were okay, but then the wind came everything caught fire by the brush and then we just had to evacuate.
there were people jumping into the ocean, swimming to boats to try to escape the fire. There were people on the ground crying unsure where to go or not able to breathe because of the smoke. And um, we were minutes away from that potentially being us. And it's just unbelievable to know that so many people have been lost and we don't know where they are. God, this is a nightmare. I thought we were gonna die. I said, oh my God, this can't be happening right now. Oh, the trees, the monkey bird trees. Next to our house. That's our house. Oh, wait, that's coming, let's go. I went up and jumped the freeway here. It's probably 80 cars in front of us, 60 or 80 cars. And it just seemed like every second was 10 hours waiting. And I kept saying, do we get out and run? Things are hitting our car, like branches and embers were hitting our car. Uh, a live wire hit our car, yeah, we had a, our car. We had a power, a, a, a live power line hit the top of our car. I was terrified. I left the bar restaurant around 3 p.m. with my my housemates. They were, they were with me the whole time. Um, and as we were driving the town, um, we could we could see that that there's there's smoke coming our way. Uh, we drove down on Front Street towards our house. During that time, there was already evacuation with bumper to bumper traffic going northbound on Front Street, going up to the Civic Center. Um, but when we got to our place, we continued to look up at the smoke, and it, it was just you know within within minutes we could see the smoke brush brush. Um, I would say a half a mile through the town. Um, I would say at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I looked out my bedroom window and I saw a huge plume of black smoke. Um, I immediately told my roommates, I said, hey, you know, this looks pretty serious. Maybe we should start packing bags, thinking about leaving. Um, and within 15 minutes of talking about that and seeing the smoke, we were running down into our cars with as anything we could grab, go bags, um, mostly nothing. I got my passport, my dog, and my truck, um, and we were peeling out of the driveway. The whole street of Wainae was starting to catch on fire. Um, there wasn't really an evacuation notice for us. It was more, we realized that the town and our street looked like it was gonna burn. 